Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to another volume of Truly Disturbing Tales from Reddit. Today we're going to be narrating three new and settling stories taken directly from the platform. I encourage you all to sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy these terrifying personal accounts. Now, without any further delay, let's jump right in. This is a long story, so bear with me. It's all true, and I'm truly happy to still be alive. It was the summer of 1997, and I was a grad student in Northern California, from abroad. Not an immigrant then, just a foreigner getting a degree, and planning to go back to the old country afterwards. At the time, my girlfriend was still back home abroad, since we both expected me to return to Europe after graduation and maybe, though unspoken at the time, possibly get married after. So she came over for a summer vacation, and that's where we hatched this idea. Let's do a car trip down to SoCal. We can take the coastal highway, see Santa Barbara, Monterey, Venice Beach, LA, San Diego. The whole tourist enchilada for two 20-somethings visiting oh-so-cool California. My then-girlfriend, and this description of her physical features is entirely serving as a preparation for what was to come that day had perfectly shaped thin legs and curved body, long hair, and was generally speaking, quite attractive. She was also borderline paranoid, which I knew at that point already, as she had already given me plenty of headaches when she had dragged me into conflict situations, where she demanded that I defend her like a man, when the situation had actually been completely provoked by her, and deteriorated due to her unstable, let's say, mental tendencies. Hence, my tendency to not immediately jump on the thought of getting married. I knew all that then, but I still went along with her demands and plans as usual that day. We were nonetheless in love and all that, but me perhaps a little less than her. So we did drive down to SoCal from the Bay Area. My rusty but beloved clunky 80s convertible took us along a beach road to a motel in San Diego. My girlfriend said, let's pick a motel near the beach so we could step out and swim in the morning. She also suggested us getting dinner somewhere and driving around town to get the feel. I said okay, what she wanted is what she got. We drove past rows of motels along this coastal road, and she knew what she wanted, so she ended up choosing. This is the one, she said. Let's park and see. The vacancy sign was lit. Parking spots in the motel courtyard were all but empty. I drove in and parked, and I had driven the entire way so she could tell that I was tired. She said that she would drive later, and I was grateful for that in the moment. She heads to the motel counter while I unload our suitcases. Coming up the stairs with the suitcases to the reception, she's talking to a youngish, tall, dark blonde guy behind the counter. Not a bad looking guy if I'm being honest. He's looking her up and down with small eyes, clearly checking her out. He sees me 
turns around and grabs a key from the board and says, I got the perfect room for you guys. And he leads us up the outside stairs. The motel was built just like a chain of rooms lined up. Fronts all looking out towards the ocean, doors towards the motel parking lot courtyard. He takes us to a room right smack in the middle of the long building, second floor. The entire motel seems empty. So it leaves me wondering, why this room? Why not something on the first floor or maybe an end? The view is the same everywhere. As we enter, I notice one smaller door next to our motel front door, which says, service personnel only. Our room is right next to it. Built narrow, but big bed and bathroom, and on the left wall just across from the big bed, a giant mirror on the wall that was shared with that service room. The guy nods and leaves us to it. As soon as we're alone in the room and he's left, I turn to the GF and say, don't you think this is weird? She says, what? I point at the mirror and take a closer look. Yep, it's built into the wall. Not hanging, but fixed into. I find this extra creepy. She says, don't be paranoid. Okay, maybe. I gotta get something out of the car anyway, so I step outside, only to see Mr. Motel Man just stepping out of the service room, locking it behind himself and heading back downstairs. Once I was back up, I took a big textile blanket and hung it over the mirror. Maybe I'm paranoid now too, or maybe not. If he was a peeping Tom, he wasn't going to get anything from us. We take a nap, and later, as we head out for some food and checking out the town, night is beginning to draw near. The motel parking lot is now two-thirds full. We were early. Good, girlfriend says. I feel foolish and swear to myself to be less paranoid. She's usually the paranoid one, and it's usually enough for the both of us. That mirror, though. Never mind. So we spend the evening having dinner, driving around until we finally decide it's time to get back to the motel. It's dark out and it's way before GPS, so I consult the city map we have. I sit in the passenger seat, glad that she's the one driving, while I try to read the map of San Diego in the light of a feeble, tiny keychain light. We're headed back roughly in the right direction of the motel, somewhat parallel to the beach boulevard we need to be on, but I realize we might have gone too far. As I stare at the map in that dim light, she looks in the rearview mirror and suddenly says, That van there? I think they're following us. I look up. Surely now she's the one being paranoid. Behind us, one lane to the right, is an old silvery blue van, a bit run down with dark windows. I swear, she says, he's been behind us for three blocks at least, took the same turns, He's not even trying to pass us, even when I drive slowly. I look around and there's hardly any traffic in this direction as we roll on. I seriously doubt her, my rational mind telling me that victims rarely ever get picked randomly. I try to calm her down, look at the map again and get an idea. Look, I said, we actually have to take a U-turn left around to get down into the lane that takes us back towards the beach boulevard with the motel. So... I said, looking down the road at the next traffic light a block away. There's no cop here. Make this a legal U-turn, and we'll see. She nods, 
I know she's a way better driver than me. She has three more years of driving experience with a stick shift in narrow European streets while I had just learned driving in America. As we approach the next traffic light and crossing, a clear no U-turn sign is hanging next to the light. That eerie silver blue van behind us to the right and the light turns red. And girlfriend gone race car driver puts the pedal all the way down, motor howling, and shoots over the red light in an illegal U-turn around to get in the opposite direction. The van? I kid you not. It sped up, shot into our lane behind us, and did the very same thing. Wheel screeching on the pavement. Then it accelerates full throttle to catch up being barely an arm's length behind our bumper, its lights glaring into our rearview mirror, blinding as hell. Hit it, hit it, I mumbled, now panicking myself, as my girlfriend accelerates, the van behind us staying on our tail the entire way. We shoot down two, three blocks, the van right upon us. More cars join in our direction, though. Behind us, the traffic gets denser and the lanes merge into one, now the van is still behind us, but close behind it are three, four, or more other cars. All speeding, all pretty close to each other. We can see all their lights. We're back on the boulevard where our motel is. One lane road. Many fairly closely parked cars to our right, with just the occasional gap or entries to other parking lots. A concrete barrier on the left. Nowhere to go but forward, really. We're moving fairly fast easily 60 miles per hour. For sure way past the speed limit here, but so is everybody else. How do we shake this van? Surely we shouldn't lead them straight to the motel. Girlfriend super driver suddenly hits the brakes and veers to the right. The van has no choice. It can't brake or it'll get hit by the cars behind it. So it passes by us on the left, immediately followed by three, four, five more speeding cars tailing it. All fast in one lane while my girlfriend swoops the car perfectly into what feels like a tiny pigeonhole of a parking spot. We can't stay here, I muttered after we come to a stop, while catching my breath. Totally stunned by her skills, by the way. I know, she says, and hits the pedal again, shooting out into traffic, but now we're behind the van. Safely at least eight or nine cars behind it. They can't possibly know. Just a few hundred yards further down is our motel. She took a swing into the parking lot. We parked and rushed up into our room, the one with the creepy mirror. I looked over my shoulder the whole time, wondering whether anyone had seen us, but nothing. Just a pleasant summer evening wind, the sounds of traffic going by, and cicadas. I didn't sleep much that night. I don't think she did either. Just another tourist summer night in San Diego. As I look back on this, the thing that I think triggered the creeps in the van was that I had a rundown car with a Northern California license plate, and they may have only seen my girlfriend driving. They might not have seen me, or if they did, maybe it was just a silhouette. So they may have assumed that this was one or two women, lost, far from home, driving around at night. I hear San Diego is wonderful. I'm sure it is, but that entire day... Felt like a sketchy intro into a slasher movie. I was told this story about 16 years ago by my mother. 
so I may make some mistakes here, but it's still an extremely freaky experience. So this happened in St. Kilda, Australia in the early 80s. My mom may have been 20 or 21, and she lived in an apartment complex where you had to ring a buzzer and talk to someone before they could be led into the complex. In case you didn't know, St. Kilda isn't exactly the best area to live. A lot of junkies and criminals reside around the suburb and congregate at the St. Kilda Pier. In the 90s, I remember warnings of not walking through the beaches due to syringes being left there. We had a heroin epidemic at the time and contracting HIV or AIDS was a death sentence. Anyway, one night around 2am, my mom is in bed asleep. She hears this blood-curdling scream from a woman in the streets below. She wakes up and dials 000, our version of 911, to tell the police what she heard and for them to come as soon as possible. Not five minutes go by and her apartment buzzer rings. She springs up to answer it and is met by two men saying, Police, let us in. We need your statement. My mom was a fraction of a second away from buzzing them in until she had a really bad gut feeling and her internal dialogue took over. How'd the police get here so quickly? I didn't hear any sirens and definitely didn't see any flashing lights. Where was the ambulance as well? So at this point, she ignores the constant buzzing, calls her friend who lives on the floor below, telling her that something didn't seem right. At the same time, the buzzing continued, and whoever was out there refused to give any identification other than saying, police. At this point, my mother's a bit uneasy and even fearful of what'll happen if she opens that door. This is when she decides to ring the St. Kilda Police Department directly. She asks the sheriff then answered, are your officers already here? The sheriff said that the police were tending to other matters and were probably about half an hour away. He also told her not to let those people in as they were not his men. At this point, my mom went down to her friend's place. She didn't feel safe in her own. Forty minutes later, two police officers rang the buzzer, introducing themselves as Constable So-and-So and Senior Constable Such-and-Such, with badge numbers and an apology for being late, asking if they could come in. Now, my mom's friend and my mom could see a police car with sirens and an ambulance out the window, so they decided to let the police in and give them their statement. The police then let my mother know that detectives were now investigating the vicinity and would let them know if the police required them to come into the station for further questioning. The police would then leave and crime scene tape is wrapped around the entire area, which my mom discovered the next morning. Being absolutely terrified, mom decided to stay at her friend's place and barely sleeps a wink. The detectives apparently discover a body about 20 meters away from the apartment complex. The victim was a young woman in her early 20s who was just trying to return home and had been stabbed several times. I don't know whether they ever found the criminal or criminals involved, but what I have learned is to never go home alone at night, to always trust your gut, and also not to believe people at their word without any given evidence. It terrifies me to think about what could have happened to my mom had she buzzed those two men in. Be safe, everyone. 
When I was about 21 years old, I served tables at a pizza chain restaurant, at a new shopping center near where I lived in the evenings, and on weekends. It was a part-time job for me. I was opening staff at this brand new place, and it was pretty popular at the time. There were several shifts of employees and a few trainers that came from other locations nearby and stayed to work at the brand new location. One of these cooks was named John. He was only a couple of years older than me. He was a kitchen manager or something similar. When I would forget to ring something in or make a mistake and he was working, I'd go back to the kitchen, tell him the situation and he would often help me, give me extra sauce or whatever was needed. He was really nice to me, never raised his voice or seemed to get mad. He was pretty soft-spoken, quiet guy. I was engaged at the time and there was no flirting or anything. He was quiet, didn't seem interested in me, like that or really whatever. Just did his job and we'd briefly chat when we worked the same schedule. I quit about four to five months after opening the restaurant and didn't stay in contact with most of the staff, including John. But fast forward a few months after I quit, I was reading a news article and the name in the article was the same name as the guy I had worked with. Turns out, he had starved his stepson to death while keeping him in a locked closet. I looked it up further and this picture came up, and it was the same guy, John. I was dumbfounded. Apparently he had gotten custody of his ex-girlfriend's child, no blood relation to him. Although I think there was another child in the house, a boy that was John's biological son. He also had a live-in girlfriend who was no blood relation to either child. The stepson was like 30 pounds total when he was found, at the age of 8 years old. This poor child was made to use a litter box the last few weeks of his life, kept in a small linen closet. And to think, his stepfather was a cook. If there were money issues, he could have easily taken food from the restaurant. No one would have known. Employees get a free meal each shift. He had so many ways to feed this child. John was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. I still think of this poor kid, who never had a chance. And about the guy who hurt him, how he was so unassuming, friendly but quiet or shy, capable of a job and training others for it. But I can't help but wonder, what's wrong with people like him? What made it okay in his eyes to be like, you deserve this kid? It still haunts me to this day, how this happened to someone or by something that made an adult truly dislike a child enough to do this, and to convince an adult woman of the same. How did neither of them try to help this child? Moral is, no matter how friendly or soft-spoken somebody may be, you never really have an idea of their true character, and there's no way to judge a book solely by its cover.